good afternoon. This is Bill Hamlet. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings at the U.S. Naval Institute, uh, broadcasting today from the uh, broadcast center, the broadcast studio of the Jack C. Taylor Conference Center here at Beach Hall at the Naval Institute on the grounds of the Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland. And um, before I get to our guest today, I want to uh, just uh, highlight a couple of things going on here at the Institute. So uh, the July issue of Proceedings is out. Uh, obviously, we're now just a couple of days after the 4th of July weekend, and I hope everyone had a good, uh, safe, it obviously was not for all Americans, a good, safe uh, holiday, uh, you know, celebrating our Independence Day, uh, torn up about, of course, what happened out in uh, uh, in Highland Park, Michigan. So um, we, uh, we put out the uh, July issue of Proceedings uh, late last fall. The, uh, the title is the Maritime Coin Project or Maritime Coin. So um, that is a package of content, about 35 pages or so in the July issue, centered around the topic of what uh, China has been doing in the South China Sea and how the United States and our allies and partners might, might push back against uh, Chinese uh, nefarious illegal uh, activity there. Uh, it's getting uh, quite a bit of attention right now. So we've had some uh, media inquiries. Uh, I talked to a Voice of America reporter uh, last night about the topic. Uh, the, the lead author and the organizer, Hunter Styers, has been getting quite a few inquiries uh, as well. So we look forward to a very lively debate and discussion uh, on that topic. And we have more articles coming up in the months to come. Uh, so I wanted to highlight that. Uh, also coming up on the 13th of uh, July, so next Wednesday, we'll be having a maritime security dialogue. Uh, our very own Ward Carroll will be interviewing uh, the Air Boss, uh, Vice Admiral Ken Weitzel, and a couple of other uh, flag officers who are senior in the U.S. Navy Naval Aviation community. And that will be on the stage in the main auditorium of the Jack C. Taylor Conference Center. And so we look forward to having the first Maritime Security Dialogue event here in our home field advantage. Uh, so the Maritime Security Dialogue series is something that we've been doing uh, for multiple years now with the Center for Strategic and International Studies down in uh, Washington, D.C., usually at their facility uh, on Rhode Island Avenue. But it's nice that now that we've got the Jack C. Taylor Conference Center, that we can do uh, a Maritime Security Dialogue uh, event here as well. Uh, so those are the, the, the flashing uh, news right now. And uh, uh, I'll get to our guest. Uh, so joining us today is uh, uh, an author, uh, and a, a reserve Navy officer, Lieutenant Commander Eric Seligman. He is uh, both a cyber warfare officer uh, in the Navy or information warfare community officer in the Navy. Uh, and in his civilian capacity, he is uh, responsible for offensive security and red teaming for Intuit. Uh, so he is a, a true uh, cyber security expert. There aren't a lot of those, a lot of them profess to be, but uh, he is one of the, the actual real one. So, uh, Eric, Commander Seligman, uh, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Bill. So uh, your article is called There Is No Cyber Bullet. It shows up on uh, pages 74, 75 of the July issue of Proceedings. Uh, I love this. I was a, an information warfare uh, you know, core person, information dominance core, naval intelligence officer. Uh, towards the end of my career, uh, there was a lot of discussion about, you know, cyber capabilities and 
Uh, I retired in, in 2016. But what we what I sensed a lot was that there was, and I even referred to your article in my editor's page this month. I said that, uh, you know, quite often there's uh, it's hard to plan for you know cyber capabilities. They're they're held very uh, in in you know very tight channels. Uh, because we don't want, uh, you know, those capabilities to be known necessarily. They can be a very fleeting capability, as your article points out. And and often in terms of uh, for planners and in exercisers, there's a bit of, you know, sprinkling cyber on a problem. And uh, to, to those who aren't experts, it can be hard to tell and hard to know what the real capability is or even how to actually plan that capability into a campaign uh, into a tactical operation, uh, into you know actually accomplishing something in in the real physical space. So, your your piece, I it just resonated with me. It resonated with our editorial board when we read it. Uh, just a terrific, terrific article that I think um, grounds the discussion in ways that the discussion has not been grounded before. So, um, I, you know, I turn it to you. Just a little bit of you know from the uh, 30,000 foot perspective to start off, you use the a very graphic comparison between a Mark 82 general purpose bomb and a cyber tool. So explain that that comparison to our listeners. Yeah. And it's not so much a, a direct comparison, right? It's more of a uh, an anti-analogy, if you will, um, because we know that physical weapons are supposed to have a very direct kinetic effect on a target. Uh, we know that it will impart a certain amount of kinetic energy and eventually those bombs will break, destroying the target, uh, even if we apply more bombs, uh, if, if that's what it takes. Uh, that, that is not necessarily the case in cyber. And so uh, when we talk about physical weapons, we talk about the specificity uh, of their effects. And in cyber, having specific effects uh, is very difficult, given uh, sort of the broad ranging uh, environmental issues that we have within uh, what we term cyberspace. Uh, because indeed, you know, that uh, fifth domain of warfare, cyber, uh, the cyber domain, essentially is continuously shifting under our feet. Um, and if we don't know, you know, the left and right boundaries of where that environment is and what the targets we're going after, it makes it very difficult to explicitly say, I'm going to have this specific cyber effect on this specific target, and this is exactly what it's going to do. Um, and so that's kind of uh, the premise of the articles trying to get to that understanding that it can be difficult without the appropriate preparation of the environment to actually execute the kinds of cyber effects we want at the tactical level. Um, and that's really the, the, the thrust of the article. So I love the fact that your article, uh, you, you talk through a number of the myriad, you know, limitations that there are on a cyber weapon. And, you know, and, and you back to that Mark 82 anti-analogy, uh, you know, it, there's a thing in the military called JMEMS, the Joint Munitions Ex uh, Effects Manual. I think it's called JMEMS. It's been a while since I've uh, since I pulled out a JMEMS manual. But you can you can look at your weapon. Uh, you can look at the thing that you want to have an impact on and effect on. Uh, you can look at fusing. Uh, you you look at redundancy issues, and you can predict. Okay, if I hit this target within X number of feet, this is going to happen. Uh, and yet your article lays out the, the multiple different ways that that is not true. Those, those physical characteristics are just not true for cyber effects. Explain that a bit. Yeah. yeah. So, again, 
Okay, I think we're better now. <laughs> uh, so, um, right, uh, to, to answer the question, um, you know, it, we want to be able to catalog weapons as specifically as possible, right? We need to know what their effects ultimately are going to be. Um, and the thing is with cyber weapons, uh, the permanence of their effects can be can be fleeting, right? We know that. We know that uh, potentially the target that we want to uh, actually uh, provide effects against can also change significantly as well. We also know the more that we use a cyber weapon, the more likely it is that there'll be a countermeasure for it. And the, the ability to make countermeasures against cyber weapons is extremely easy or can be uh, in cyberspace. All it takes is an understanding of the vulnerability uh, that is being attacked uh, or an understanding of the signature of the weapon that's going to be attacked. So if I know, you know, the specific byte sequence going over the network of a particular attack uh, that I know is going to take out, you know, let's say a, a radar installation, I can put that in uh, my firewall and it's going to be blocked. Or if I know that it's going up against a specific vulnerability uh, that was previously undiscovered, but then I see you acting against that vulnerability, I can make a patch for that and fix it. Uh, and so mitigating cyber weapons is much, much easier uh, than it is mitigating physical weapons. Uh, and that's also why I kind of emphasize the, the necessity of covert nature of cyber weapons, uh, because without that covert nature, it becomes very, very difficult to have weapons that have both enduring effects uh, and uh, have a long shelf life. So uh, just pulling the string a little bit more on that, you, you mentioned, you say, consider just one potential variable when designing a cyber weapon, the target's operating system. And you say this, this may seem simple to account for. Note that Microsoft has released 14 major versions of its OS in the past 15 years, and then multiply that by two because there's an iOS version and there's a, a PC version, right? So you're talking many, you know, so if you're right. developing a, a weapon, you got to, you know, which OS are you talking about and on which type of system is it operating? Exactly. And it's not just the, you know, patch level, uh, or rather it's not just the operating system, right? It's also the patch level. It's also the software that's installed on the target. It is the uh, computer network defense mechanism. So the endpoint security like you know, McAfee or Semantic uh, that may be installed. Uh, it also may be the target state of the network. So there could be some kind of degradation within the network. There could be memory problems uh, within the computer system. Maybe it hasn't been rebooted in 10 years, you know? Uh, so there's all kinds of things that could be happening on the target system that we simply cannot account for. Um, and so when we think about utilizing those cyber weapons, we have to understand, uh, again, the, the ephemeral nature of, of the target space that we're talking about. So uh, for those of us who are less computer literate, um, uh, to talk a little bit about, without going into classified details at all, but, but talk a little bit about the process of somebody at U.S. Cyber Command or even, you know, you, you are an offensive cyber person at Intuit for a, for a, a private software company. You know, talk about some of the, the, the process that goes into creating a, a weapon or a capability, an offensive capability. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, what most things... Uh, in terms of what has to happen first, there has to be a requirement. Someone has to say, I need an effect generate, uh, uh, generated against this specific target. And so once a specific target has been identified, 
or at least a class of targets, then it goes into essentially what is R&D mode. Um, so we first look and see if there's any you know, publicly available uh, exploits available for it. Uh, the likelihood that these will work is pretty low, but it could potentially give someone a starting point for you know, iterating on that particular work. Uh, once we look at public, uh, publicly available uh, you know, exploitation vectors, we then kind of look into our internal stock of weapons to see if you know, there's something that was done in the past that maybe could again be retooled uh, to, to attack that particular target. Uh, once that's done and we can affirm that there isn't something already in the available stock, uh, to provide the, that type of effect against the target. Uh, we then basically start researching vulnerabilities for that. So that's going to involve, you know, creating uh, sort of a virtualized uh, uh, facsimile of the specific target uh, and building out software against uh, what they perceive to be potential vulnerabilities. So they're going to iterate through, you know, all of the various functions and, you know, the memory states uh, and other uh, vectors that could potentially be utilized to, again, impact and effect against this particular uh, system. Uh, and once that's done, they have a potential lead. Uh, they'll start, again, being very specific in terms of what kind of uh, effects delivery that we can have against that given target. So, um, so assuming that you've actually found a potential vector uh, in that system, you then have to think about, all right, I can bypass the security of this particular target, uh, what can I do after that? Can I install some kind of persistent command and control? Can I directly modify the system, uh, sort of living off the land to give me uh, continual access? And once you've kind of determined what kind of access you have after that, uh, then you have to determine you know, how long you'll actually be able to stay in the system with that particular kind of access, um, whether it be you know, inherent to the system or something that you have deployed on the system. Uh, and ultimately, that's going to determine what kind of effects you can ultimately have against the specific target that you're going after uh, and how long you'll have it. Because the ideal end state is that you have access to this system uh, in perpetuity and that any time you need to generate an effect against it, uh, you can just dial up the target, hit a button, and then that effect is going to be generated. In reality, it doesn't always work out like that. Uh, but generally speaking, uh, that's how the process uh, would be executed. We hear a lot about uh, Chinese and, and Russian and North Korean and Iranian, you know, computer network exploitation and and, and attacks uh, against everything from, you know, civilian targets, including, you know, gasoline pipelines and, and on the East Coast of the United States to, uh, you know, voting machines, perhaps, uh, you know, uh, is there a do those nations have a different process or is it? is the process the same as what you just described? Is everybody got to go through the same process to to create a, a cyber capability, a cyber weapon, if you will? Yeah, so uh, in terms of research and development, yes, that technical process is essentially the same. Where they have an advantage is that the United States tends to hold offensive cyber capabilities very close uh, to a handful of agencies and a handful of government agents, whereas China and Russia, they distribute that across you know, the, uh, the, the totality of their workforce. So not just governments, uh, but they allow universities to play, they allow private entities, uh, and in the case of Russia, they are, allow criminal enterprises uh, to play as well. Uh, and so the, the 
breadth of the people that they allow to develop these weapons and to go after targets uh, is much broader than what we allow uh, in the U.S., for better or worse. There's a question from Robert Elliott, one of our uh, of our viewers, and he, he says, uh, can we stockpile these munitions? Doesn't the rate of upgrades uh, create the use or lose dynamic? Don't they have a shelf life? Absolutely. Um, so you may be lucky uh, in that you find what is sometimes termed as the, you know, the skeleton key exploit that allows you to you know, exploit some you know, fundamental underpinning of the internet or of an operating system. But those are very, very rare uh, and far between. Uh, and so in many, many cases, if you develop an exploit, um, even if you don't use it, it will have a usability drift, meaning that if you don't use it within a period of a few months or a few years, depending on what the patching cycle is of your given target, uh, it will absolutely uh, uh, be less useful as time goes on. It may, uh, may be very quickly rendered inert in totality. Yeah, that's a great point. Great question, Robert. Appreciate that. Um, so my next question is, uh, if there's no cyber bullet, you know, that anti-analogy that you started with, uh, is there a better analogy for cyber weapons and capabilities? Yeah. So I've been thinking about this question a lot. And if, if we can't make an analogy of a bullet um, and we can't make it a missile or anything else like that, um, you know, it, is it really worth trying to make an analogy at all? Or is it really a question of education and educating people, you know, what this thing is like? We all know and understand kind of what like a space shuttle is, right? Because we've seen it, we know what it is. But if we go back 100 years and try and tell people what a space shuttle is, it'd be very difficult because they don't have, you know, the experience and the uh, you know, educational background to do so. So I, I, I'm not, I, I haven't come up with uh, an analogy that works for everyone, other than to say, I think we need to start injecting cyber education much, much earlier uh, in you know, the training of our officers and in the training of our leadership, in addition to you know the population at large too, so that we don't have to create sort of you know clunky analogies to try and describe what is really a, a very complicated uh, process that requires a lot of you know, education and understanding to have. Uh, so I know that's not not the it's a, it's a bad answer to a good question, but uh, that, that's what I have. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's a great point. Education is always incredibly important, especially as technology brings us into new places and we're trying to you know, figure out how to talk about them, communicate, communicate about them uh, and develop you know, tactics and operations uh, and, and you know, concepts for using them. Right. Your, your article does bring out, you know, you, you use the, the, the term the thief, the lock picker and the saboteur, which uh, were, that was helpful to me, you know, uh, as I was reading it, okay, I get it that it's not like a Mark 82, it's not a bullet or a bomb, what is it more like? And, and those analogies did help me understand at least that, okay, there's an aspect of having to, uh, you know, pick your way, the lock picker, get into a system. So you gotta have that access and then you gotta, you gotta stay stealthy. You gotta be, you know, a, a thief, you've gotta be hidden. Uh, while you're there, or else if you're discovered, then you're done, then, then your capability is gone. And then you've got to, at some point, be able to sort of sabotage the system, right? So there's that aspect of it. Yeah, absolutely. And we can definitely make analogies for the behaviors that we're performing. The weapons analogy is a little bit more difficult, right? But in terms of what we're actually doing on a target, I, I think those are you know the best analogies that I could come up with. 
And it really speaks again to the necessity for covert action uh, when we're performing uh, cyber exploitation uh, and rendering its effects. Uh, I also speak in there about, you know, you know, the, the wants to do show of force exercises uh, or ex yeah, show of force exercises within cyber and kind of demonstrate our capability to our adversaries. Uh, and I argue strongly against things like that. The most effective uh, cyber attack is the one that the enemy doesn't even realize is occurring. You know, their their weapon misses by a meter or it fails to launch because of what appears to be some kind of you know, mechanical failure or the radar picture is just ever so slightly askew. You know, things like that where it appears to just be bad engineering versus a spectacular failure. Uh, those are the kind of cyber effects that will be enduring uh, and most effective over the long run, in my opinion. Uh, that's a great point. So uh, I, I want to um, go off script a little bit and ask you a question about, uh, you know, popular culture in the movies. So, you know, Top Gun Maverick is in theaters. And so everybody, you know, from we're, we're all talking about that movie and comparing it to its predecessor. Uh, and, you know, and, and you've got to suspend disbelief a little bit when you walk into the theaters and, uh, and you and you watch Tom Cruise on the screen. And, you know, it's a great I think it's a great movie. But of course, it's not uh, it's not really true to life of, uh, you know, how operations happen on an aircraft carrier and the, uh, you know, that tactical operation, a little bit, a little bit far-fetched. But uh, I want to ask you, do you have a favorite movie that, you know, has a cyber scene in it? You know, so that's, that's such a theme these days in movie plot lines is, you know, somebody hacking into a system and providing the remote lock opening or the access to the, bring the security system down. Anything in the movies that Hollywood's put out there that you say, yeah, that was pretty good. That was actually one of the better ones. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Uh, you know, most of the military-based movies kind of have this, you know, fantastical, you know, three-dimensional graphical overlay where the you know person is traveling through cyberspace or what have you, and you know comes to the target and then you know it goes like that. It's not anything like that at all. It's a very typically you know very simple interface, simple prompts, command line inputs, things like that. Uh, but strangely enough. Uh, the movie that I think probably represented this the best was the Matrix, uh, the trilogy yeah. of movies. And, uh, obviously, a very fantastical concept in general, but in terms of what was actually on the screen when they were you know, doing their so-called hacking, uh, it was actually quite realistic. And I believe they actually used some real exploits on film for that. So it was, it was pretty interesting. Oh, that's great to know. Yeah, I was a huge fan of those movies, so uh, love them. Um, back to a minute ago, you mentioned, you know, you're not a fan of this idea of, of show of force, right? Uh, and it, you know, there's been a lot of discussion, I think, particularly before and just as the, the Russian campaign in the Ukraine kicked off, this whole discussion of deterrence. And is are there things you know, in, in cyberspace that would act as a deterrent, uh, you know, to the Russians. There was a whole talk about, you know, perhaps things that could be done to their, uh, their uh, you know, economic and uh, uh, banking systems and those kinds of things. But, you know, I, I think you've made a very good point there that this is, if you do something as a show of force, which is often what we do for deterrence, you know, we steam an aircraft carrier strike group through the Taiwan Straits famously in 1996. Uh, you know, we, we fly bombers, uh, you know, in airspace close to, you know, maybe Iran or North Korea when they're getting ready to do something. But we show military force. Is there a deterrent uh, capability? Is there a way to deter in cyberspace? Yeah, and that's a very 
good question and a complex question as well. Because if you look at our adversaries, if you look at what you know China does, that you know the an intellectual theft of you know trillions of dollars of IP over you know decades, uh, or what Russia has done uh, in regards to you know their information warfare campaigns and other things, they don't even claim that they've done it. They don't even say that this was us. It's just something that happens, and so it's it's very interesting for them that the most potent thing that they can do uh, in cyberspace is not proclaim that they have functionality, but going out and, and executing it. Um, and I think there's potentially a lesson to be learned there in that if you execute a cyber attack and no one knows it came from you, or if it even if it didn't come from you, the fact that people believe that you might have perpetrated something is, is in a sense, a powerful weapon in and of itself. Uh, and beyond that, I think in terms of what we can do to sort of officially uh, put something in doctrine that would provide a, a, a cyber deterrence, essentially what we can do is state, hey, these are the you know uh, bodies that we're creating in terms of like you know the, the cyber mission teams and the uh, cyber national mission teams and so forth. This is you know the giant enterprise that we are putting together to perform cyber warfare. And hey, adversaries, look at this. We got. A lot of people, a lot of energy, uh, and a lot of uh, focus going into this. Uh, and we are here to protect this domain. And if you don't, you know, abide by the rules, we have the capability to do things about it. What those things are, you won't know uh, until it happens to you, so, or maybe not even then. So we have, uh, I don't know if you know him, uh, Tyson Medors is a member of our editorial board, and he's also an information warfare community cyber warfare engineer, and, and he's uh, uh, now active in the chat um, function here. And he, he makes a, a couple of points. I'll just read the points, and maybe you can you know give your thoughts on them. Um, he says that, that opinion about effective versus less effective cyber actions is not backed by a recent example or political reality. Any thoughts on that? Um, yeah, I, uh, yeah, so it, it's, it's a difficult thing to respond to, um, cause I, I need to know exactly what he's talking about in terms of that political reality. <laughs> uh, but, uh, the efficacy of cyber weapons, it depends on if you're, uh, trying to generate a specific effect or you're trying to gain access to something. Obviously in the access example, you either have access to a certain degree or you don't. Uh, and the effects question is what type of effect you're trying to generate and to what degree. So I, I'd like to, I'd like to understand exactly what, uh, what example he's referring to. <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. Well, may, he may, uh, uh, type more into the chat window here while he, if he does, uh, I, I just have a, a follow on. Um, and it's it, what you just mentioned about, uh, being able to know the effects, uh, gets me back to um, your your Mark 82 anti-analogy, right? So I spent a lot of my time uh, in the naval aviation community as an intelligence officer. So I'm a targeteer. I went through joint targeting school. I, I understand the Mark 82 very well. I understand what, you know, a Tomahawk can do and the, how JMEMS works and how do you put together a strike package and all those things. And, um, you know, there's go, no go criteria for, for missions where before the F-18 goes feet dry over the beach, we want to know that 
that you know air defense system is down right that's the most threatening air defense system for example right but if you're if you're counting on a cyber weapon uh to deliver that effect you know would you even know i guess that's my question it gets to your your point about the subtlety of the best weapons are those where the person the 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 enemy doesn't really know that it was a cyber weapon that's impacting him he just knows that his radar is not working so the deployers in most cases should know whether or not the weapon was effective not necessarily in all cases uh, depending on what you know the specific effect calls for uh, but that, at that same time uh, you should also be very aware of the environment that you're going into so you need to know the specific uh, you know computer network defenses that are set up you need to have eyes on what you know the instant responders are going to be doing uh, depending on uh, what types of activities if you trigger them or not uh, and any other kind of uh, environmental factors like you know network links and memory uh, allocations and things like that like i've discussed before uh, all of those are factors that should be being monitored by those who are going after uh, targets and then the efficacy of uh, you know the uh, targeted effects uh, should be known in at least the first and second degrees uh, in most cases uh, but the third order fourth order and so on uh, effects can be very very difficult to uh, to predict uh, in some cases Gotcha. Gotcha. So Tyson came up uh, with a, uh, an example. So he says delaying Putin's recent speaking event by a few hours wasn't at all subtle, was likely not a particularly sophisticated attack, but achieved a significant political victory on the Ukrainian side. So I don't know if you're more familiar with that one. I, I was not aware of that. I was not aware of that. Uh, but absolutely, uh, you know, spectacular effects, effects can be very effective in the short term. So, but my question would be, whatever weapon or methodology was used to affect that attack, will it be able to be used again now that they know it happened? Uh, so that's the kind of the premise I'm getting across. Gotcha. That's a great point. Um, okay. Well, we've uh, we've come to the end of our time here. This has been a terrific conversation. And, and for our listeners, again, our, our guest is uh, Lieutenant Commander Eric Seligman. He is the author of the article in the July issue of Proceedings. It is called, There is no Cyber Bullet. To understand how to use cyber effects, commanders must first understand their limitations. And and as I said, I'm not an expert on cyber, but this is one of the most powerful articles that I've read because it grounds you so well in um, an analogy and an anti-analogy that's particularly helpful to explain the differences between a cyber capability and a, a physical kinetic capability that perhaps more of our listeners and, and readers are familiar with. So uh, well done, really, really nicely, greatly written, tense, terse, tight, um, and just uh, just just very useful. So I, I hope that this one gets a lot of attention. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Bill. It's a pleasure to be here. All right, Eric. Well, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks again, and I uh, hope you'll write for us again. Absolutely. Well, that wraps up another episode of the Proceedings Podcast. I want to thank our producer, Heather Legg. The show is brought to you by the members of the Naval Institute. Since 1873, our members have been the foundation of everything we do. To become a member, go to usni.org forward slash join. Until next episode, remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute.